you're seated, we come now to verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20 for our consideration. For some context, uh, consider from verse 17 and onward through verse 23. The Passover through a warning. Luke 22, reading from 17 and through verse 23. Speaking of Christ, we read, And He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And He took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of Me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup, is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Well, it's particularly verses 19 and 20, the Lord's Supper itself that we consider This morning, notice again those two verses, And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. There are a few words, even in the Holy Scriptures, which so clearly, sufficiently, and simply set forth the wonder of Christ and His love and loving work as two words that appear before us in these verses. And the two words are, for you. Notice, you find that, for instance, when in verse 19, Christ says, this is My body which is given for you. And you see it again, In verse 20, when he says, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you. And so the work of Christ that is signified by the Lord's Supper is a work, he's saying, that is not done, as it were, abstracted from His purpose for His people. That His work is a work intimately connected with the good and well-being of His people. This is an emphasis that the Scriptures throughout make clear again and again. Such that Paul's able to say, as all believers are able to say, that Christ loved me, and think of the beautiful expression that follows, and gave Himself for me. Now we can of course say it more generally, He died for sinners, of course that's true, and yet included in that, the believer is discerned, that this has been done for me. And this is a message of the Lord's Supper. Christ is presenting to us and as it were forcing upon our understanding that this is not something we merely consider intellectually and we think about, but rather we receive it and it's applied to us because the work of Christ was done for us. So notice the context. We've seen Christ is to be betrayed. That's all been set in motion by the betrayer, even Judas, surnamed Iscariot. 
And so he's received the money and he's going about planning and finding out a way to do this. Christ and the Passover, which we considered last week as he spoke and what a blessed thing it is that he with desire has desired to eat this Passover with you. Notice verse 15, before I suffer. And now we have at the conclusion of the Passover, which you see in verse 18, we have then the institution of the Lord's Supper. So the Old Covenant sacrament of the Passover, which directed to Christ, is now turned over to the Lord's Supper, which does the same, directs us to Christ. And so both of these, the Old Testament sacrament and the New Testament sacrament, are pointing to the same Savior. So Christ saying with desire, desire to eat this supper before I suffer. And now He says with the institution of the Lord's Supper, what is this bread broken? It's My body which is given for you. What is this cup which I take and bless? It's the cup of the New Testament in My blood which is shed for you. So both of these with so vibrantly and well-lighted symbols are pointing to the suffering of Christ. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And now Christ institutes this feast, a simple feast, not a carnal feast, but a simple and spiritual feast with tangible signs and seals directing us to His sacrifice. So Christ institutes a most simple but powerful sacrament to keep before us what? Notice, not just to keep before us His crucifixion. Now we don't deny that that's included. But we notice that Christ is saying that all of this is for you. It's to keep before us Christ for us. Not just Christ, Christ crucified, but Christ crucified for us. Now, if this were invented of the church, however wise the men may have been, we would have the right to decry this as presumption. How dare anyone take up such a thought and take up such intimacy? But notice, and this is the blessedness of the purity of worship, that when purity of worship is honored, there is the opening of tremendous comfort Because the ordinances then are not invented of men. They are ordained of Christ. And as ordained of Christ, they have assurance for us that the message that is there is a message Christ intends for us. And so we see the wonder of such a rich provision. Notice before we venture further that the Lord's Supper is a sign. Now it's more than a sign, but it is a sign. Notice, Christ is not yet sacrificed. His flesh has not yet been broken. His blood's not yet been, been poured out. But He's saying, this bread is My body broken for you. And so no one there would have thought, well, this is the sacrifice of Christ. Literally, corporally that I'm eating. I'm literally eating the flesh that was sacrificed. No one would have thought that. No one could have thought that. Because Christ was standing before them whole and entire. And yet, it was pointing to what He would do. You can even see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, of course, notice how Paul speaks of the sacrament. 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. He says there in verse 16, halfway through, the bread which we break. Notice, even after it's been blessed, right? Because first blessed, then broken. What does Paul call it? He says it's bread still. The bread which we break. He doesn't say the host. He doesn't say uh, the uh, uh, literal, corporal flesh and blood. He says it's bread still. But it is bread which is now for what? Communion with the body of Christ. It's not the body of Christ, literally, but it is that means that Christ employs to draw us to share with the benefits of His body broken for us. So the Lord's Supper is a sign. You'll notice as well that it is a seal. This word seal is found, of course, in various places, but in Romans 4, when it speaks of Abraham who was circumcised, which circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith. What is seal? Well, seal is a sign which authenticates. It confirms. So in ancient days, and even today, we speak of seals as an imprint that authorizes the thing as genuine. So for instance, we talk about a university's seal. Our diploma might have a seal on it. And what's that seal doing? This is literally, as it were, confirmed by the authority of the university this one has graduated. Or there may be a seal of a state on a record of marriage. And it's confirming that the civil magistrate has confirmed this is a lawful marriage. And there are many other things. Well, the point is, the sacrament is a confirming sign. It seals and authenticates and thus confirms to us the reality of what's being said. So think of this for a moment. If you graduated university, college, whatever it might be, of a bachelor's degree, of an associate's degree, you pull out that degree and you don't say, this is my graduation. right? You don't say, this is my learning. You don't say, see, this is all of the hours and all of the time I put in. This is the level of my education. You pull it out to demonstrate to others that you did pass through the courses. But your actual education is far more than that piece of paper. What's the piece of paper doing? It's confirming to others that it's not just on your word, but the word of a, an, an authority that has the power to issue such credentials that you indeed have done what is required. It assures. Well, similarly, the Lord's Supper assures us of the things that are there. And you see that in the text. This is my body which is given for you. So as the bread is broken and handed out, there is assurance given as well. Well, We want to take this up as we consider how the Lord's Supper is a message of Christ for you by looking firstly that the message of the Lord's Supper is a message of suffering for you. Secondly, it's a message of blessings for you. And thirdly, it's a message of signs for you. These three things, suffering, blessings, and signs, that we might derive much help by the Lord's blessing as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord willing, 
next week. Firstly then, the Lord's Supper is a message of suffering for you. It's striking how the pendulum has swung from a sort of hyper-concern of merely having a memorial. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, it just reminds us of what Christ has done. Over to, if not Roman Catholic view, something very close to it, where it exaggerates the message of the Lord's Supper in a way. Instead of the biblical ground that it is both a sign and a seal, it's of remembrance and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. To help counter the tendency we see today of raising the sacrament to a level that it ought not to have, we remember the central message of the Lord's Supper. What is it? It's of Christ who suffered for His people. Notice verse 19, this is My body given for you. The sign is pointing to something. This is important for us. We wish in no ways, and indeed we'll see this in a, in a moment, we wish in no ways to denigrate the importance of the Lord's Supper itself. But we do wish to see that the Lord's Supper and its blessing is because Christ instituted it for remembrance of something superior to the Lord's Supper. Some of you have a wedding ring on your hand. If you lost that wedding ring, you haven't actually lost the thing it symbolizes. You retain that which the sign is a sign of. And that sign is a sign of something bigger than the sign. Well, here, the Lord's Supper, as precious as it is, as we'll see, as highly prized as it is to be, is so because of what it's pointing to. Not because of what it is itself. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the crucifixion of Christ. But notice, not just as a historical fact, as an act and event of history, but as an act and event of history in which He was doing something for His people. So we affirm and would die for the cause of affirming that Christ truly bodily suffered and died on the cross being crucified. But we add what the Scripture confirms that that was not just a historical event of you know, uh, exemplary suffering, but it was a suffering by way of saving sinners. So notice, Christ says, this is My body broken, this is My blood. Both of these are emblems of death. If one's body is truly broken, not merely bruised, not merely wounded, but broken, it is destroyed. It's lost its life. And the blood that is poured out, well, if your body or mine is to lose its blood, well, we realize that whatever other signs of death will be there, our body is then dead for sure. Notice then, it's pointing out Christ's suffering which is to come. Now, today it points back to Christ's suffering that was accomplished. But the point is, the Lord's Supper is a message of Christ crucified. This is important for a number of reasons. One, it tells us of the wonder of this truth that the Son of God should suffer. Not merely what a wonder it would be just to say that He died and rose again, but in the way that He died, crucified, there, hanged upon a cross, 
And as the Scriptures confirm multiple times in multiple places that He was hanged on a cross in order to be a curse. He suffered. And oh, brethren, who among us has ever looked to the depth of suffering He experienced? There are moments when we get a glimpse of how dark and deep the waters of His misery are or were, but we never will ever reach the full depth of agony experience. We must acknowledge His physical torment was uh, uh, quite extreme. He did not have the ability to quench His thirst. He had no ability to uh, brush away the bugs and insects that would have been swarming Him. He had no ability to relieve His pain in the least. His body literally extended such that it could not move apart from forcing pain either upon His wrists and hands or upon His feet. The outward shame displayed as He did not have any clothes, but rather His naked body exposed not only to the elements, but unto the eyes of all who watched. And not merely that, but bruised and bloodied beyond compare such that, as Isaiah says, we would not recognize Him. Such was His beaten outward man. But brethren, the suffering extends far deeper, not minimizing any of the outward things that He did suffer. For He who is the apple of the Father's eye, He who is His beloved Son, was brought to such open torment, spiritual death, He was made to be sin for us, though He knew no sin, that He bearing the weight of that and the wrath of God against that cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? All of the comforts that ever He had known hidden for a season and only the tormenting wrath of God unleashed upon Him. This is His suffering. And yet, these precious words remind us why He suffered. This is My body broken, given for you. This is the cup of the New Testament in My blood for you. This is the message of the cross. It's a cross of substitute. Meaning this, what you witness on the cross is what you deserve. That's your deserving. Not temporally, merely for a time. For He, as the uh, eternal Son of God incarnate, was able by uh, the beauty, the wonder, the dignity of His hypostatic union, the personal union of the two natures, uh, God and man, gave such wealth and blessing to His sufferings that He was able to answer the infinite justice of God in a matter of hours. Whereas you and I, who have no such dignity, would require everlasting torment unending. But what we see there is Christ engaging in the suffering that you and I deserve from God. If you want to understand what hell is, there are passages in Scripture that if you meditate upon are alarming. You think of how Scripture describes it, Christ Himself, when He speaks of, you know, it's where there's gnashing of teeth, where there's wailing, where they have no rest. Day and night, the fires continue. Their uh, their worm 
never dies. All of their corruption is ever in a state of corruption. All of it's ongoing. All of it's continuing. All of it's with the force of divine weight and power. But if you wish to see the closest thing you can to getting a glimpse of hell, just turn your gaze upon the cross and you'll see it. If you ever have a thought, well, I know that there's a hell and some will be there, but I think God will be kind to me and I'll get by. You look upon the cross and ask who's there. Because it's the eternal Son of God incarnate. And if God was willing to punish His Son in order to redeem His elect ones, be sure and realize this. And on the last day, if you think to say to God that, well, I didn't know the reality of this, Everyone in this room will stand up and say, that man, that woman is a liar. Because in your presence, I confirm to you by the authority of God's Word that God will by no means clear the guilty. If you stand guilty, the torments of the cross are yours forever. Without ceasing. Without end. The believer, the one converted, has come to see that. Now, none of us expect or assert that any of us has come to see it in the full weight of it, but we've come to acknowledge that that's what I deserve. I deserve, without any excuse, against Thee, the only have I sinned, in Thy sight done this ill, that Thou mayest be just in judging still. We acknowledge God is righteous to condemn, but here's the wonder of the cross. The spotless Lamb of God says, I take it. I endure it. I even quench it on your behalf. That's the force of those two blessed words for you. On your behalf. In your place. I'm your substitute. Thus, the cross is a message of suffering in substitute for you. And brethren, this is the message of the Lord's Supper. It's presenting to us this preeminent message. Christ has suffered for us so that when we come and with faith look to Christ and take the bread broken and drink the wine that is presented to us, we by faith are saying, what He's done, He's done it for me. And I rest my soul upon His work. Ask yourself this for a moment. What do you contribute at the Lord's table? What do you add to the bread or to the wine? And the answer, of course, is there's nothing. I don't add anything to the bread. I take the bread. I don't add anything to the wine. I take the wine. Well, that's an important message that God has instituted in His Supper. Because that's the message of salvation. We add nothing to. We contribute nothing to. We merely receive what Christ has done. We take the bread broken. And by faith, we take the Savior who was broken. We take the cup of wine. And by faith, we take Christ Jesus. Now someone might say, but that's not fair. Surely such a thing as salvation 
is worthy of my contribution. And you've got a problem right away because you don't understand there is nothing of your own doing that will ever meet the level of what is needed and what the value is of salvation. There's nothing you can contribute that would ever add to or meet the requirements of what is required for salvation. You, if ever saved, must solely receive the perfect work of Christ Jesus. And that's the message of the Lord's Supper. Christ has satisfied the divine requirements. Christ has satisfied divine justice, vengeance, wrath, judgment. And Christ then says, I've done it for you. What a blessed Savior indeed. But notice secondly, this is of course preeminent what we've just considered, but likewise there are additional blessings we can discern. Because of this expression Christ uses in verse 20, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Such a rich phrase that we often skip past and that to our own loss. This language of new covenant is not new to this passage. There are several passages. We can look at one just as illustrating the point for sake of time. If you turn to Jeremiah in chapter 31, you'll see this testified there at verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. God says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know Me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. There's more that can be said, but you can draw from that passage several things. The new covenant blessings that are held forth and promised are several fold. Forgiveness of sins, which we saw. Sanctification, I will write Your law upon Your heart. And fellowship. Those three things, among others, or you could even you know, break those out into other things. If there's forgiveness of sins, what is embedded in the New Covenant? Peace of conscience. Join the Holy Ghost, right? If there is the writing of God's law upon our hearts, what is there? But delight in the things of God. Enjoyment of God. And not just outward constraint and this outward white-knuckled form of obedience, but a new obedience of which our catechism speaks of with reference to repentance unto life. All of these things are, as it were, contained in the New Covenant. But here's the problem. The fullness of those blessings cannot be given until the One who promised it dies. Do you understand that? If you make a last will and testament, what you're saying is this. Well, out of that supply, I will still provide to my children... But the fullness of what's there will not be theirs until I die. So some of you have children. Perhaps you've made a last will and testament. You say, listen, whatever wealth I have, when I die, it's being signed over. It's put in this trust or it's given directly to these 
who inherit this testament, right? Well, similarly, certainly anything is an imperfect comparison, but similarly, it's not being said that there was no forgiveness or no sanctification under the Old Testament, but it's saying the spiritual richness and fullness of power was reserved unto the death of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit. So it's not Old Testament, no salvation, or different salvation, New Testament, the salvation. It's that the fullness of that salvation and the explosion of blessings, the riches of assurance, the clarity of heaven is reserved for the death of Christ. And so you can find under the Old Testament renewed men. You can find under the Old Testament assured men. You can find under the Old Testament holy men. We don't deny that. Scripture doesn't deny that. But the fullness of all of those things is reserved for the death of Christ and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. So it's not two different covenants, one of works under the Old Testament, one of grace. The covenant of works is for all men. All men stand condemned by it, Jew and Gentile. The covenant of grace is the way of salvation by the mediator, under the Old Covenant and under the New. What's going on is this. You can think of it this way, children. If you had a wealthy parent or grandparent, and they were, as it were, to take gold all up in their arms and say, all of this is yours when I die. Well, you can imagine some of the gold dropping from their arms. And they say, you know, that's for you now. But the whole fullness of it is reserved until I die, and then it's all yours. Well, what happens, if you can visualize this, the arms open up, and all of the blessings come flowing down unto those who are promised at death. Notice, this is the point of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And notice at verse 15. For this cause... He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. You see the point? All of these riches, by Christ saying, this is the cup of the New Testament, notice the language, in my blood. What's He saying? By my death. All of them are now open and offered to you freely. And again, get this in your mind. What do you put on the table to get so full an inheritance? And the answer is nothing. You contribute nothing to all of these blessings. All of these blessings are opened unto you by the death of Christ. And the message of the Lord's Supper is this confirmation. Just as the cup is taken in accordance to God's Word, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me as we're remembering by faith Jesus Christ and taking the cup. What we're saying is, I own all of the blessings graciously given me as they are now mine. That requires faith. And you start to see the utter foolishness of people who
who treat with all the outward ceremony and pomp and circumstance the Lord's Supper. Oh, we ought to have reverence. We ought to handle these things in a holy way, but not with the artificial and outward display of all of these things that wicked ceremonies added to God's Word do. Because the blessing is in the Word of Christ as He adds that blessing to the sacrament. And we with faith look to Christ to receive those things. Remember this. The blessings are not by the sacrament itself, but it is by faith remembering Christ in the sacrament. Laying hold of that. You can go back to an image, an illustration used earlier. You think of a document, a last will and testament. And you can think there are readings of the wills and testaments of men and everyone's gathered together. This wealthy uh, uh, relative is there and all of the people are sitting there saying, oh, I wonder who gets the land, who gets the businesses, who gets the possessions, who gets the money, who gets all of these things. They're all sitting waiting for the attorney to stand and read out this last will and testament. And it gets read and it's interestingly divided among the people and they're all happy and they say, can I have copies of this? Of course you can have the copies. And so copies are made, they're authenticated, the seals applied to it, this is legitimate. You have this portion of the inheritance. Who there would be satisfied with merely having the document and not possessing the thing promised by the document? Who would go home and say, I now have $10 million because this document promises it, and yet wouldn't go and ensure that the finances are transferred into their bank for their enjoyment, for their use, for their sustenance, for their service to others. They would be encouraged by the document, but they would not be satisfied until the things certified by the document are theirs in possession. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. It is the document asserting these things are for you. But by that document, as we might say, we thus look to Christ and say, as you have promised, so then I receive. What's required then? Understanding, discerning the Lord's body, right? Paul says that. But faith, faith embracing, trusting, saying, yes, Christ doesn't lie, Christ doesn't deceive. Christ isn't one to say one thing and then mean another. When Christ is promised, He's promising. It's for me. So I take Him at His word. Yes, I'm unworthy. I'm as Mephibosheth. I'm the son of a rebel who sought out the anointed's death. That's what I am. Unworthy. I'm lame in both of my feet. And yet the King, the anointed, has said, you henceforth will sit at my table and eat what I provide. And Mephibosheth comes by what warrant? On what grounds? By the promise of the anointed David. And so it is with us. We come as sons of rebels. As rebels ourselves who have nothing we can contribute. We can't be men of war. Our feet are lame. We can't be great workers in His kingdom. We ourselves are broken. But we sit at His table and enjoy the provision of His kingdom because His Word has promised the message of the Lord's Supper is a message of blessings for you by Christ to be enjoyed in your life. Well, then notice thirdly, 
the Lord's Supper is a message of signs for you. It's interesting to think, what would society be without signs? Is it possible even to consider that? You know, you can think of fewer signs perhaps, but can we actually imagine a society without signs? You know, we do little signs about reminding ourselves, make sure you pick up this. We put a sticky note on our desk or whatever else. We drive according to signs. We look at reminders. Everything's reminding us of something. Well, the Kingdom of Christ in His great wisdom and mercy provides us signs for our good. Sometimes we're given warning labels, aren't we? You know, whether that's, you know, don't touch this, the stove is hot, so your oven might have a light that comes on if it's electric. Um, you have other signs on packages, you know, this is microwavable, don't, don't, don't microwave it for more than four or five minutes, the thing will explode, right? There are warnings. There are other things that are encouragements, right? And so you have warnings that tell us this water is not to be uh, had for drinking, And other signs say this is purified water for your drinking, for the quenching of your thirst. And so those signs, of course, encourage us. I can't drink that, but I can drink that. Well, the Lord's Supper is a sign for good things. It's a message that is embedded in the sign. Notice, this bread is my body given for you. So it's a sign directing us to His body. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do in remembrance of Me. But notice, it's given for you. It's shed for you. So the sign has a message. And the message is Christ. Christ for you. We've talked about this already. But then notice, the sign has action embedded in it for our good. So notice, Luke's is a bit abbreviated, but you have it in verse 19. He takes bread. He gives thanks, and He breaks it, and He gives it. All of those are actions. He's taking the bread. and Oh, there are rich things to think on with each action of the Lord's Supper that Christ assumed to Himself true humanity, body and blood. And then He blesses and gives thanks. And then He breaks it. And oh, how we ought to think of Christ's body broken. But then it's shared, and we take it and we eat it. All of these signs are rich for faith. Faith is being fed as it were. Christ took His body for me. Christ was crucified for me. Christ is given for me. Just as bread nourishes, so Christ nourishes as well. Then also He takes the cup. This is where Luke is a bit more abbreviated. But He takes the cup. And then it is that having blessed it, He then shares it with others. And this reminds us that it was no private suffering for Christ, but it was a public thing. His shed blood was shed for us. And so in taking that, we are outwardly saying, I take His sacrifice for me. What a blessing then the Lord's Supper is. These signs of encouragement. Now all of us have signs that mean one thing and yet have been broken. Some can think of signs that they receive from others. Some even can look upon signs of marriages and remember how those signs failed because the vow was not kept. But brethren, here is the encouragement. Never is there so strong a bond 
between the sign and things signified as the Lord's Supper. Christ is perfect in His Word. Never will He fail. Never will He not keep what He has promised. Never will He not fulfill what He has said He will fulfill. And so we can take this sign with the utmost of confidence because, notice, embedded in the very supper is this. This is My body which is given for you. This do in remembrance. Notice the language of Me. And so, yes, it's about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's suffering, rather. But it's about the Lord who suffered. It's about Him And if we remember Him, we have an alleviation of our doubts. He's the true and living God incarnate. He is the faithful and true witness, as we're told. He is the faithful One who speaks truth. His mouth is full of grace and truth. All of these things, think of this, He is the One in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is altogether lovely. And He's saying, All of this is to direct you unto Me and what I've done for you. The sign is, as it were, not to be the thing we stop at, but it is to be the thing that leads us to the one we stop at. Rest in, rejoice in, enjoy, fellowship, and commune with. Because the sign is meant to lead us to Christ. Anyone who stops at the sign is a fool. And they're actually missing out the point. The sign is meant to direct and lead us to Christ Himself. So brethren, as we close, here is one display of the great care of Christ. But let's make this as Christ would have it. His great care for you, His people. It is not just the great care of Christ but it's the great care of Christ for us. He remembered us, and He would have us remember Him. And in His remembering of us, there is indeed the provision of redemption. In our remembering of Him, there is the receiving of all of those blessings as we rely upon Him alone. What a great privilege it is then that ever we should have the Word of Christ which directs us to Him, and the sacrament which is, as it were, the acted out Word. It is the physical sermon, the physical message, Christ broken, Christ crucified for us. And so He gives us His Word, and as many have noted, with the sacrament, He confirms His Word with a kiss. He comes near to us and says, not only from a distance, I have done this for you, but He comes near, takes us by the hand, embraces us and says, I have done this for you. What a privilege it is to have the sacrament. There is the right esteem of the sacrament. Not in and of itself, but what it is according to Christ's institution and as He uses it for our good. This also is the reason there is great danger to partake unworthily to say, well, it's a neat ceremony. It's special. It's reverent. Oh, it's amazing. They sit at the table. I'm not interested in all the pomp and circumstance of you know, all of the ceremonies that are in vain, but this is interesting. And so I want that. If that's where you are, don't come to the table. Because the table is not about the outward ceremony itself. It's about the sign directing us to Christ. 
That's why we must examine ourselves and discern the Lord's body and then eat and drink in faith, rejoicing in Christ. These things are most spiritual, though they be displayed tangibly to us. The act of eating wrongly, the act of drinking wrongly, is to incur judgment from the living God. Illness, death perhaps even. But the act of eating by faith, drinking by faith, is as Paul says, to enjoy the communion of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Why? Because it directs us to Christ. Brethren, if the Lord sustains us, it is our hope to gather next week to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And if you would benefit, well, the sign tells us your first concern must be with the One who suffered. To take Him as the One who suffered for you. And the second thing is to consider the sign rightly that it guides you by hand unto the Savior to enjoy Him who did all of these things for you. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let us pray.